So I've been very happy to hear that the group has still been meeting in my absence. It's really wonderful. And um, sort of on that theme, and also for, from a request, I want to talk a little bit about community today, community as part of the practice. And I mention that in part because I'm just from letting people know that as I come back and teach, and also next year, and this is true in the fall as well, if you have something you'd particularly like me to talk about, you're, ha- you're, you're perfectly uh, um, invited to send me a suggestion. <laughs> I know guarantees, but it may happen. So I want to talk tonight about community, about independence, about shame, and about the self, who we actually are. And I probably won't get to all of that tonight, and we'll pick it up some other time. So I think we all know in some ways um, the essential part of community in our practice. We're really always practicing community. Community is always providing the container in many ways, the support and the possibility for our practice. You may have felt that just here tonight. We just sat in silence. Right? We weren't interactive with each other at all. There was no explicit sense of being together, let's say. But I know that I feel, just sitting in a group, that sense of support, that sense of being held by the other people sitting with me. For any of you who have been on a retreat, it's a very powerful experience we all have together. We're in silence. There's very little to no interaction between people. And yet there's a strong sense of really feeling held by the other people around you, of feeling supported. Pinchas of Koretz, an early Hasidic rabbi, taught, when a person is singing and can't lift his voice, and another comes and sings with him, then the first one will also be able to lift his voice. And that is the secret bond between spirit and spirit, between ruach and ruach. There's some just felt sense, like somebody else comes along and it just picks you up, it just brings you with them. And what's amazing is that's true when we're not singing, we're just in silence as well, (laughs) right? We can feel, at least I feel like, I feel the lifting of my hearts as others lift their hearts with me, as others sit with me. I feel that strong sense of support. That sense of chizuk, of strengthening, of my practice and of my growth. And we know this actually from research as well. Um, One study uh, I read recently showed that solo participants in a weight loss program, they were trying to lose weight, had a 76% completion rate and 24% maintained their weight loss afterwards. 76% completed the program and only 24% maintained afterwards their weight loss. But those who brought a friend had a 95% completion rate, and 60% maintained their weight loss after six months. I think that's actually pretty amazing numbers. The first number I think is interesting, right? There's a 20% difference between completing the program, which is already very significant, right? And that's just doing it. You've already got the support of the program. But what I think is really significant is there's a 40% difference in maintaining what they acquired. Right? That sense of, look, I had some experience, I had some learning, I had some wisdom, but I can't actually maintain that on my own. I can't hold that on my own. It takes this community, this support, this participation to hold that together. And I feel like, you know, we're all working on an ego loss program. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> and my guess is that our success depends to a large extent on whether we have friends on the path, whether we have support on the path. Because there are sort of moments, moments, and moments are beautiful, but when we have friends and support on the path, it what enables us to continue to walk that path, to have that path continue to be expressed in our lives. It gives us the container and the space to allow our practice to continue. It gives us the reminder and the strength to allow our practice to continue. And it's what we miss when we go it alone, when we don't have others helping us in our practice in our lives. Um, and it's important for all of us. It's very important for me. You know, having that sense of practice, of support, of community. It's a crucial piece. And there are times in my life when I've um, lacked that. And I've felt it very concretely and very deeply. And in particular, I want to talk about a particular aspect of, I think, the work of community and sharing the work I want to encourage us all to do, and a work which actually is at the central part of the practice we do here. And that's um, confession and, and the confrontation with shame. Confession and the confrontation with shame. So what am I talking about? So what initially inspired me to think about community interaction this way is um, Rav Avram Kalisker, it's an early Hasidic Rebbe, had a group of Hasidim, um, which he supported and taught, but really stressed tremendously in them, not dvekut to the Rebbe, but what's called dibuk chaverim, cleaving of friends one to another, and mutual support. And he recommends this practice of basically co-counseling, you know, mutual therapy of the students meeting daily or weekly and sharing their own spiritual process together. And he says, to do this, you have to find the right kind of people, people who share your desire um, to liberate themselves, basically, who want to free themselves from insincerity and falsehood. And then he says, you should share of yourself and share all the difficult things you find about yourself with the other person. And then he says, and this is, I think, the most interesting part for me, it will be found, in my translation, that when a person will see in a friend something wrong or objectionable and reprove him, he will not feel ashamed before the other. And will confess to the truth. Will confess to the truth. He won't feel ashamed. Right? There's something about this process of exposure, of bringing the truth of who we are to the moment, that allows us to let go of that sense of shame, of embarrassment which holds us back, which says, oh, it's just me. It's just me. Only I have had a thought that terrible. <laughs> an action that terrible. An emotion that terrible. Whatever it is. And it's in fact the letting go of the shame which acknowledges and allows us to acknowledge the truth. It allows us to see the truth. And we can see this in our own practice, right? We're working with something. We're opening to our experiences. And when shame arises, it's so painful and difficult to see what's actually happening at this moment. What's actually arising here. Because the shame is so threatening. So threatening to us. And the more we can have that compassionate response of, oh, this is just what it means to be a human being. This is just what it means to be a human being. The more space there is actually to see the truth of our responses, to see the truth of our experience, whatever it is that's coming up, 
whether it's something that feels shameful, whether it's something that feels that I should feel proud of, whatever it is that's arising in my experience. And it's actually part of what I do when I speak to you. You may have noticed when I talk to you, I share a lot of my own failings and fears and worries and concerns and things where I feel like I've messed up. And not only do I do that because I think it's valuable for you, but it's also part of my own practice, right? It's part of my practice of letting go of shame, of letting go of embarrassment. It's part of my practice of being like, yep, after years of practice, this is where I am. <laughs> and this is what I'm dealing with this at the moment. And this is what's hard for me at this moment. And it's part of what's so powerful about spiritual community is that ability of release and confession. It might happen for you, for instance, even while I'm teaching, when you ask a question which exposes your own vulnerability and doubt, right? And so this process of self-exposure, allowing ourselves to say what we fear to say and be held in love, can be a profoundly healing process. And so the question I want to ask all of us in a certain sense is, what can you confess? Maybe just as a way of letting go of shame. What might you be able to confess that you feel a little bit jittery about, right? <laughs> I don't know if I really want to share that thing. <laughs> that feels a little scary. Not so scary that you're going to get overwhelmed, right? But just that growing edge. It's like a little bit scary. It's a little bit jittery. But you could feel how there might be a sense of liberation in letting it out, in letting it be known. And also, what are you not ready to confess? It's okay. I'm not ready to confess everything, right? But just seeing that and seeing it's a place where shame and embarrassment still have a hold on us. It's all right. It's just seeing that. It's like, oh, there's shame. I shame. I see you. That sense of somehow I'm wrong, somehow I'm not okay, somehow if I share this, I'm going to be seen as less than what I am. And can you deepen that confession in your practice? Even if we're not ready to admit it to others, are we ready to confess it to ourselves, to admit it to ourselves? to genuinely see that part of ourselves which feels, for some reason, a little too threatening, a little too wrong, a little too bad, right? Feels somehow fundamentally unacceptable to us. And recognize that that's just a thought, just a story. Whatever that is that feels totally unacceptable, I promise you, at least a million other people have felt or done that exact same thing, right? At least a million. That's like a small estimate, right? If you take the population of the planet, right? I'm saying at least a million because that's actually a very small percentage of the human beings, right? But at least a million have like felt the exact same thing that you have felt, have done the same thing that you have done, right? At least a million. So you're not sort of, there's a feeling in a sense of shame that we are sort of estranged from the human race for a moment or something. Like we have done something outside the boundary. We have felt or thought something outside the boundary. And in fact, what we've done is just been human in that moment. Just been human in that moment. 
And so the practice is confession. It's admitting. And it's really, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, so confession is vidui. Vidui. Or hoda'a, which comes from the hodot, to confess, right? To admit, really, right? It's just to say yes, to acknowledge, which is the same word as to thank, right? Modeh, modim, toda, right? It's all the same word. It's just saying, oh yes, yes, that's what's true, thanks, <laughs> right? Oh yes, that's what's true, thanks. It's just saying that over and over again. It just means to say that this is the case. And I think it's, it's important and valuable because sometimes we think of confession as sort of like, oh, something kind of, I don't know, yucky or, or admitting that we're terrible in some way, right? It's not about admitting we're terrible. It's about saying yes again and again and again. And this, that's our practice. It's just like, oh, yes, oh, thought arising, yes, oh, emotion arising, yes, Oh, confusion arising, yes. Oh, lost in sound, yes, right? Oh, shameful thought arising, yes, right? Just like, yes, that's what arising, that's the nature of our experience. That's who we are, all these things arising. It's just so how I am at this moment. It's just saying this is true, this is true. And then it's saying sort of thank you for this truth, right? Just saying, oh, thank you for this truth. Thank you for letting me see that. And thank you for letting me see that. And thank you for letting me see that. How would it feel if each thing which arose, you said thank you for? Right? If you could just say, oh, thank you for this truth. Or you just said, I agree. Right? I agree. <laughs> I agree. That is true at this moment. I accept this. I see the truth of it. The truth of my anger. The truth of my joy. The truth of my jealousy. The truth of my silliness the truth of my not feeling good enough, and the truth of my always being good enough, right? Any piece of those, just saying, oh yes, I agree, I agree. Just imagine for a moment, it's really helpful, to just imagine for a moment, what would it be like to say, I agree, to everything which arises, everything. No matter how difficult it is, how challenging, you just said, oh, I agree. I agree. Gentle nod of the head, right? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. How freeing would that be? How liberating would it be? And it's what we're trying to do, to say, modim anachnu lach, right? Modeani lefanecha. I thank you, but really just, I admit before you, I acknowledge before you, I accept before you, I confess before you. I thank before you. It's an amazing opportunity to just train in accepting the world. And this experience can be even more powerful in community. Because my experience is that when we share this in community, it can kind of shred that place of shame. It says this is shared, this is part of our mutual human experience, and the shame just kind of falls away, kind of rips it apart. I was just reading, I wish I could remember where I read this, um, but um, there's a psychiatrist uh, who's an expert on bipolar disorder 
who just wrote a book, a sort of memoir, admitting that she was bipolar and had psychotic episodes and didn't know if she would stay healthy forever, right? Like it was sort of always a question and, and had had breakdowns before. And it's something that she had kept hidden from her colleagues and from her broader medical and research community and a major researcher as well. Because she said, you know, she was terrified of the reaction of the community. Would they dismiss her now as just, oh, somebody with a disorder, right? Would they see it as too personal? You're not an objective scientist now. Would they dismiss her comments as idiosyncratic rather than those coming from a respected researcher? And she said in this piece I read, she said she didn't know, right? When she wrote this, she didn't actually know what was going to happen. But she had gotten to the point where she just knew she had to speak the truth. And it was like more painful and more scary to keep it inside than the possible consequences of letting it out. Speaking our truths, our vulnerabilities out loud is really powerful. It's really powerful. Speaking them out loud in our mind is really powerful. And speaking them out loud out loud is really powerful. <laughs> one of my teachers asked one time a great question. She said, what would it be like if we all walked around and like all our thoughts were just broadcast to the world? <laughs> right? They're like, everything you thought, everybody else just heard. <laughs> that just happened all the time, right? So just think about for a second, like, what would that be like? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> good, right, the thought just came out to the world, right? So I think many of us, if we think about it for a second, there's one experience and reaction which is like terror, right? <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> what if all my thoughts were just exposed to the world? Like every petty angry, shameful, like everything I thought, right? Everything that came to my mind, all of a sudden, everybody else knew about it, right? Terrifying. And there's another side, just want to encourage you to see, which I think many people see as well, which is like, how liberating would that be, right? Like, it's all out there. Can't do anything to control it. As you all know, you can't stop your mind thinking, right? You, you probably all tried that at some point in the meditation practice. That doesn't work, right? So how liberating would it be to just be like, can't do anything about this. And, oh my God, it's true of everybody else as well. Right? All the things that felt like our own dirty little secrets. It's like, oh, everybody's thinking crazy stuff, right? <laughs> everybody's thinking crazy stuff. And so there's something really beautiful about intentional community being a place to share um, to push the boundary of shame in a certain way. A sort of halfway house, right? It's not totally internal. <laughs> it's not the world at large. It's not even, I'll say in my experience, it's not therapy. You know, like in therapy we do that, but it's, it's very particular. It's like, it's a therapist, it's a professional relationship. Um, there's a kind of particular kind of protection to it. And what intentional community provides is a kind of group with a common project who are friends maybe in some ways, but not necessarily your intimates, not necessarily all your closest friends, right? But still a group of people who can hold that truth together, which is both terrifying and liberating. 
And I think that supports, and one reason intentional communities like this are so valuable, is because it gives the container for that kind of growth and sharing and wisdom and experimentation to happen. I think it's something we all do in, in certain contexts, with our friends, with our family, with other kinds of relationships we have, we share, and we share to varying degrees in different relationships. And I think that's valuable and beautiful. But I think what's special about a kind of intentional community is that it's a community with kavana in the original sense. That is, there's a direction. There's a kind of arrow pointed. We've got a goal, and our goal is to awaken. Right? That's our goal. Our goal is to wake up. And having that sense of a shared project can create a container which allows a certain kind of work and sharing which is quite beautiful and extraordinary, in my experience. A work and sharing sometimes which is impossible in certain ways, maybe even with our friends, because there's different kinds of relationships and expectations and understandings. Um, and having that shared project, that shared commitment, creates a certain kind of context, a vulnerability, which allows a certain kind of exploration to happen. And in doing that, in sharing ourselves, and really in the practice in general, we all become our own teachers and each other's teachers. And it's a really precious part of the practice. This opportunity, which is our constant opportunity, to find our own wisdom and to share it with others. It's what we do when we practice, after all, because the core here is the practice, right? Not any teaching or insider words, but our own experience of opening and the way the words help to direct us, incline us towards that felt sense of opening, that felt sense of awakening. And it, it's valuable how our colleagues, our friends, our teachers, our students can help us see how to incline our hearts and minds in the right direction. You know, I talk to my teachers and to my colleagues about things that are happening with me sometimes, my own personal processes, about um, my work, about teaching, about the classes, etc. And I do that because they have a lot of wisdom and experience and practice. I do that because they know things sometimes I don't know. But I also do it often because somebody else can often just see things that you can't see. You're kind of stuck in your own place and own perspective. And sometimes it's like, oh, you share with somebody else and they can all of a sudden see into a place where your mind and your heart is getting trapped in a way that you couldn't. And again, I want to just suggest and offer it as a really precious place, as a possibility for this community. So share that places where we're trapped and see how our friends and colleagues can help us out. There's a wonderful scene in Brachot in the Gemara where Yav Yochanan um, falls ill. And um, just before that, there's a whole series of, of, of stories where Rabbi Yochanan goes and um, heals people. They get sick and he goes and he heals them. Rabbi Yochanan goes and heals them. And in this story, he gets ill and Rabbi Chanina comes to visit him. And Rabbi Chanina says, do you want to be ill? And Rabbi Yochanan says, no. And Rabbi Chanina gives him his hand and he heals him. And then a question is raised. Why didn't he just heal himself? 
And the Gemara responds, A prisoner cannot free himself from the prison. That's a beautiful line. Right? It's a deep line. It's like even the healer needs a healer. Right? And it's true of all of us. There are many ways we can be healers for others, and there are many ways we need others to heal us. And it's a wonderful gift. And none of us can do it by ourselves. We're actually always already in that process of aiding each other. And it's useful to just make that more explicit sometimes, to be clear that this is a process we're all in together when we name our difficulties and struggles, and we invite others to sort of reflect on them in their own experience and practice, we receive sometimes insights and just valuable ways of inclining ourselves that can help our practice flourish and develop. And yet, in a certain way, and this is also true, it's ultimately up to you, right? Do you want to be happier? Do you want to be free? Nobody else can do it for you. You have a unique relationship to this body, mind, heart, soul, because you're in it. And others can help you find the path, help you locate the lost self. But only you can actually bring it back. Only you can really bring it into the fold. Only you can genuinely welcome it. And so there's a solitariness to this practice as well. And for each of us, there's a unique relationship to this mind, body, heart, and soul that we are. There's a unique relationship and there's a unique responsibility, which is our own work, our own practice. And yet, when we take that a step further, we have to ask another and deeper question, which is, who is this you? Who is it ultimately up to? Who is this you? Who is this James? It's ultimately up to James. Well, who am I? And the reality is that there's no me separate from the rest of you. It just doesn't exist. It's not like there's some solid thing here fundamentally separate from the rest of you. What it means to be me and do this work is to do it in community, to really do it in the community of all beings, because we are not fundamentally separate from others. That's sort of a lot to say, <laughs> and a lot to take in. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more, but it's just an opening. It's an opening to a much kind of deeper discussion of what it means to be who we are. So Rav Moshe Cordovero, who's a very important 16th century Kabbalist, lived in Sfat, wrote about this deeply. And he said, Kol Yisrael arivim All of Israel is responsible one for other, that famous statement. Because everyone has a piece of the other in him. And when somebody sins, not only does he damage himself, but he damages the part of the other person which is in him. And so we see from the perspective of this part, his fellow is responsible for him. 
If this is the truth, then they are, and this relates to an earlier comment he makes, they are she'er basar, they are of one flesh, one with the other. And it's interesting, because in a certain way, there are, by the way, so arivim zelazet, but actually, early girsa'ot, early versions of this phrase say, arivim ze right? So it's like, Rev Cordovero is actually understanding in some way the early essential meaning of that statement. It doesn't just mean I'm responsible one for another, but we are all mixed up one in the other. So then, of course, we're responsible. That's just the natural outgrowth of that statement. We are actually mixed up one in the other. We are fundamentally not separate. So what does that mean that we're fundamentally not separate? That we are, Thich Nhat Hanh says, we inter-are. <laughs> That's what it means to be. We inter-are. Look, there are many ways to talk about it. And there are sort of two fundamental perspectives about undoing this illusion of sense of self that we have. That's my claim, that it's an illusion. The illusion we have is that there's some James, which is sort of here, and like kind of lurking behind the thoughts and emotions and experiences I have, and is the owner of all those experiences, right? So it's like my thought, and my emotion, and my whatever, right? All those things are mine, and they apply to this James thing. And there are two things we can see. One is we can see that actually there's nothing lurking behind. There's just thoughts, and emotions, and actions, and a bunch of other stuff. And that colloquially makes up me. It's not like there's no me. There's me with my history, and my personality, and I do the things I do. But there's nothing kind of else. There's nothing else lurking behind. So that's one piece. And that's the piece of sort of seeing how we fall apart. right? Seeing how the self isn't as solid as we thought it was. But the other piece of this notion of James is that I think there's this like very clear barrier between you and me. It's like me and my experiences and my feelings and my emotions and you and yours. And maybe we might like talk about things at some point, right? But we are definitely distinct as two people, right? We are two distinct separate beings. And so the other piece is to challenge that fundamental sense of separateness. Now, of course, that's compassion, actually, right? Compassion is challenging that fundamental sense of separateness. But more deeply, not more deeply, actually, just to sort of suggest in some ways concretely the way we can experience this, we can experience the way I don't know, each person's soul quakes in certain ways are felt in all of us in community. And it doesn't have to be mystical. You walk into a retreat and you can feel the settling there. You can feel whether it's our souls communicating or some subtle communication of our bodies and minds and smells and who knows what. It doesn't really matter for our purposes. What matters is that we're actually in this together in a felt sense. We can know it because we know that the way people act towards themselves from an outsider's perspective is never a solitary act, right? The way those we love interact with themselves always affects us, is always cared for by us, is always intertwined with us in our relationship. And it's true with the rest of the world. We're never separate, radically separate from our environment. On the very, very, very simplest level, 
Air is constantly becoming part of me, right? And constantly leaving me. My body and molecules are constantly changing, actually, right? Parts of my body are constantly falling off and dying. <laughs> Other parts are constantly growing. That's just true of my physical form, right? It's just scientifically true of my physical form. Ten years from now, you will have a completely different body than you have now. I don't mean that in terms of the shape, right? <laughs> I mean, that, like, there won't be one atom, one piece of your body, which is the same piece of your body, right, ten years from now that is now, because that's just what happens to our body. The shift, the parts shift, they change, right? It happens with all this, and those parts become other things, and other parts come into us. It's part of the actual nature of the world, the actual just physical nature of the world we experience. And it's part of the emotional and mental nature of the world we experience. Now, it doesn't mean there's no distinction, right? If you kick me in the knee, it doesn't hurt you in the same way, right? <laughs> and I can't hear your thoughts, <laughs> and you can't hear mine, right? That's also true. But we tend to take those separations as radical and ultimate. Right? as making us fundamentally distinct from each other. But it's not true. Actually, these beings we are are porous. We are porous and vulnerable and interpenetrated. We are constantly being affected and touched by the world around us, and we are constantly touching and affecting it. And it's unavoidable. Even if you go as a hermit and be on a mountaintop for 40 years, you'll still be constantly affected and affecting your environment. Right? There's actually no avoiding that. And so even that place of solitary work is in fact always happening, always happening in the space of interaction, of interbeing, of inter-are, of community. And the more we can acknowledge and recognize that, the healthier it is for our practice. Because we start to see and ask questions like, oh, what environment is going to support this interbeing which I am? How can I act in ways which is going to support this interbeing in which I participate and I'm a part of? I mean, you know, we're going to vote, many of us at least, <laughs> I hope, <laughs> for those of you who can vote in a few days, right? It's a big question, right? It's a big question. We are actually constantly part of this process. How are we going to vote in a way which helps sustain which helps grow, which helps create more compassion, which helps create healing in this world, right? It's part of this nature of this interbeing in which we all participate. It's just part of that nature. It's no different from any other piece of being part of that nature. And this participation in community is part of that as well. And what we can touch when we start to open to these insights, and it's just, it's an invitation here, right? It's an invitation. Is, as Cordovero continues to say, he says that when we do this, then we will see and experience the suffering of others just like our own suffering. We have a direct relationship to it just like that. And then our care and compassion becomes infinite. And, of course, just as complicated as our care and compassion for ourselves. And you might just want to open to that possibility for a moment and see. I know for me, when I sort of raise that possibility, there's some part of me which rejects that, which says that as completely threatening, right? It's like, no way do I want to feel other people suffering the same way I feel mine. No way. Keep it away from me. 
And I can feel my body tense to its implications. And there's another part of me which can see how deeply liberating that would be. How deeply liberating it would be to see my fundamental connection to everyone else. To touch the deep vulnerability and transparency that that feeling would require. How profoundly open and free would it feel to actually feel that deep sense of connection with everybody sitting here. To feel completely, convincingly embodied that I am not separate. And I'm somewhere in the middle, right? I'm somewhere in the middle. And I just notice the way my own mind can touch the possibility of liberation, the reality of fear. And even in just seeing that, can I start to incline my heart more to that sense of non-separation, to the sense that we are all deeply connected and what happens to all of you is part of what happens to me and just as much what happens to me is part of what happens to all of you. Not about putting myself first and not about putting myself last, about seeing myself just as part of this community of being, of this community of creation. So we're going to pause there. Um, a few words before we move on to a few minutes of questions. Um, one, we have another retreat coming up. Um, this is our one longer retreat of the year, week-long retreat. Mazalto. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, which is a week-long retreat in March, just before Pesach. It's really a beautiful, amazing opportunity to touch this possibility of liberation, to deepen your practice. I strongly encourage all of you to think about coming. Um, there's financial aid available as well. Um, there are flyers outside, and so I'd like to make a request. Uh, first is, um, come. Second is, um, invite other people you think might benefit to come. Your personal recommendation is really important. And third is to please take a flyer in Hebrew or English and hang it somewhere that you think people will see it. So if you're part of a community, a shul, a class, uh, I don't care where, that you think somebody would see it wherever you want, uh, please take one. We can print more, so don't feel like take however many you think you will use and hang up. That would be wonderful. Um, I'll also say, just so we can move there, then right into questions, this class is always is by donation. Um, please give generously. Um, and wonderful to see you guys again. So I'll open up. We only have a few moments. I apologize for questions. So about the, um, the vulnerable persona, and particularly the vulnerable public persona relating to the woman who came out, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was just thinking about this topic yesterday, and I want to know what you think about the fact that the more vulnerable you're willing to be in public, on a certain level, it seems like the less, the more power you've given away, the less powerful. Often those two seem to come together. Yeah. And I wonder if you've given thought to that, to the kind of power that our society expects people to have, and the kind of, it's even anchored in the halacha, that like the Talmud Chacham is not supposed to go around in all kinds of funny ways and, and joking and whatever, but be a bit sort of persona-ish. And, and what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what's true power? I think is the real question there. I think it's a great question. Because there is a certain kind, and I think it's true, of power that our society um, relates to people in certain ways. And when you make yourselves vulnerable in certain ways, 
there are certain kinds of social expectations which sort of, in a certain way, take power away. But my own experience is that I feel fundamentally more powerful the more vulnerable I am. The more vulnerable I am, the less threatened I am. It's like the more vulnerable I am, the less fear I have. It's like real power. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't have to be scared anymore. There's no threat here. I don't have to hide who I am. I can really be who I genuinely am in this moment. And I would even say, this is the second piece, and there's no guarantee about this, right? It definitely doesn't always work. <laughs> but my experience is that the more vulnerable I am, the more powerful I am even in um, the sort of mundane sense. Like, the more clear and vulnerable I am, the more I'm able to sort of stand up for myself in things like negotiating with my boss, you know, <laughs> or claiming what I need from somebody or in some situation or being more successful in teaching or bringing retreats, etc. It's like when I'm willing to give up the illusion of holding myself together and really take on the true power of vulnerability, then I'm able to act, I feel like, in a much more powerful way. And I think that's even, you know, I think it's a great, um, you know, you mentioned the idea for the Tamil Chacham and how the Tamil Chacham should, should look. So there's a great Hasidic tale, which is about, um, to make it short, the sort of, uh, the Rebbe dies and his son is supposed to inherit, but he says, you know, his son shouldn't inherit until um, the community sees him acting like a child. And nobody really knows what that means, and so he goes home and just does his own thing, and they just hang out, you know, like they sort of don't have a Rebbe for a while, and finally the community comes to like, get him to be the Rebbe, and they knock on the door, they open the door, and he's like being a horse for his kid, right? <laughs> the kid's like riding on his back and being a horse. And, um, and the story is saying there's something really important about actually exposing yourself and being childish and silly. It's a different model of sort of leadership and what it means to be a Tommy Chacham and be a leader. Um, but I think it's the real one, you know? And it's like if we can be, have that vulnerability and really expose ourselves then there's tremendous courage in us and I think sort of tremendous authenticity, you know, and we can lead from that place of authenticity and courage. And it doesn't mean, I just want to be clear, doesn't mean that it doesn't make other people uncomfortable, because it does, and it doesn't mean that they're always willing to sort of see that and be with that or like that's okay for them, because it's not. Um, but that's okay, <laughs> you know. Now, I feel like there's a broader question, which I don't know the answer to. Like, I'm, I'm just genuinely sort of approaching this question, but I say from my own place, which is, um, you know, I would say that's true also in things like politics, right? <laughs> so even in politics, there's a game you're supposed to play and a way you're supposed to present yourself, and, and I don't know very much at all about that whole thing. You know, I know much as sort of a lay observer. But what I'd say again in my own experience is that when I act politically from a place of pretending or have to pretend, whether that's politically like in terms of the state or in terms of my community, etc., it feels wrong and bad to me. It doesn't feel very effective. And my models of how to really be powerful, and again, Thich Nhat Hanh, I mentioned before, is a great example of that. You know, somebody who I think has had a, a real effect, does amazing work, does amazing political work, um, and does it from a place of what he says is true, true power. Now, 
that also may mean he fails in some ways. I don't know, you know. But for me, it feels like um, it's more worth it and it's more true to act from that place. And I want to I want to say something else with that, which is saying that is not to not acknowledge that there is risk in that. There is risk in that, right? It's no good pretending there isn't risk in that, right? That there's risk. And we still have to be wise about things. And there may be some places or some situations we can't share certain things. That's okay, right? Maybe in sort of employment conditions and we need to have that job and if we shared certain things, that wouldn't be possible, right? That's okay. It's okay to be wise about that and clear about that. And it's okay to be clear of the real risks and consequences and fears. That's fine as well. And to sort of just encourage us as much as possible to, to find that edge. And in my own experience, this is no guarantee of anything, <laughs> my own experience is that the more I've found that edge and been genuine, um, the better it's been. Right? The better it's been. Even when people can't hear it and can't sort of manage it in a certain way, it's still, it's been like freeing and the actual event has worked out better. There are no guarantees about that. Things can go wrong. But I'm just sharing my own experience with you. And that at least experience gives me nourishment to think when I'm scared to do it, still scared to do it often, right? How can I do it again? How can I bring that truth and vulnerability a little bit more? So I have to pause there. Sorry. <laughs> um,